Um, so before I get started, the format of this conference was relatively intentional. You know, I've talked about that a little bit. We left a lot of time for conversation and interaction. Um, you know, I think a lot of you being in urban settings or in northwest settings or foreign settings, a lot of the conferences that Calvary Chapel offers, um, the churches that we call from and the faces that we put up front and the voices that we hear are relatively homogenous. Their settings are similar. Um, and, and so I really want this to be for us and by us. You know, I don't, it's, it's not even that I want to find the secret to success, the people in the urbans who are really getting it. Um, they, so anyways, what that looks like is, um, and you may have noticed it in our speakers, um, whoever's hosting the conference, and I, Lord willing, would like to see this move around the country into the other big cities of America, um, I'd like them to speak. Uh, I'd like someone else within the network to speak. I'd like somebody from an international Calvary Chapel, like Sebastian did this year, to speak, because I found a lot of common ground there, and um, they've been in the cities longer than the Calvary Chapels in the States, because you don't go to France and plant you know, out in the wine country, you plant in Paris. Um, and then somebody from outside our movement that we can learn from, like Ray. And so that's kind of the balance. And I say that to explain why I'm up here. The, the only reason I'm speaking at my own conference is because I'm hosting this year. Um, and I feel the weight of that actually because, because um, for one, my, my personality, my giftings, my strengths even are relatively narrow. Like I'm pretty confident in who I am, but I'm razor focused. And a big part of what it looks like for us to do church here is supplementing for the rest of what it means to be the church. Um, but, but as your host, I did, I did want to talk, and um, I wanted to talk on preaching because that's something that I really care about. I believe in preaching. Uh, my life was changed by preaching. I grew up in a Christian context in a Baptist church. I was familiar with the Bible, but the Bible had never been presented to me. It was always an auxiliary to Christianity. The sermon was separate, and it came from the Bible, and it referenced the Bible, but it wasn't, it wasn't like we do here. And uh, when I was in high school, I walked into a Calvary chapel. I chased a girl into a Calvary chapel. She happened to be the pastor's daughter. I didn't know that until I came through the door. Um, into a college service, and that's a misnomer. It was a trap, okay? The entire college service was this pastor's two daughters, me, and the atheist best friend I brought with me, okay? So it was custom fit. Uh, and he had been taking his daughters, because they were the only college-age kids in the church, through the book of Nehemiah. And we happened to be in the passage of people who had worked on the wall, okay? It's one of those chapters. It's a list. It might as well be a genealogy. And in classic Calvary style, even though we're just sitting in a circle of chairs, you know, in the uh, fellowship hall of this little church, he reads the entire chapter through, and then he prays. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, I have made a huge mistake, and this, it's too small. There's no way I'm getting out of this. Whatever's coming next, I'm stuck with. But that was the day that I learned the reality of what the Bible is. And I don't really remember what was said. I remember after he finished praying, he said, look, I know this sounds dry, but let me share you a few things. 
I remember that. Everything else was just face melting. It was just the word of God living and powerful. And suddenly, like many of you can probably testify to, I found in myself a hunger for the word of God and I was at every Bible study in that church. Uh, And my conversion came later and it was a very messy and rough time, but it was constant exposure to the truth of who God was, constant exposure to my contrast with that truth, you know, that drove me to my knees in the middle of the night where I just finally surrendered. I'd been missing the subjective side of Christianity. I knew it objectively, but that I was a sinner in need of saving, I missed that part. Uh, That the word was something that was relevant to lives, all of that was missing. Um, My entire identity at that time was built on a lie of self-confidence. You know, I was the crazy dresser in my school who broke all of the social constructs, who knew everybody. I was sharp-tongued and clever, had no friends and a boatload of respect. I wouldn't have recognized that at the time, but I was pretty pleased with myself until I got in a church and saw actual love. My face ached from smiling being around these Christians because I didn't know joy, I only knew cynicism. Um, And so my entire identity was destroyed by the gospel. I started stuttering, I could no longer look people in the eye. And I had this huge heart for people to hear the word of God and was pretty sure I was both morally disqualified and completely incapable. That's where I started. This was um, 2002 and so I was dreaming about the sermon archives that are now reality. How can I just get preaching out there so people can hear it? But I didn't think that I'd have a part to play in it. So I believe in preaching. I believe in the power of the word of God. And to tell you the truth, there's a lot of places we could look to. I mean, just think for a second about all of the words that the New Testament uses to talk about what we do actively in communicating the gospel and how diverse they are. You know, there's evangelio, this, just this word that means to proclaim news, right? To, to, to draw attention to the facts. There's carusom, which means to herald with royal authority. There's laleo, which just means to talk about conversationally. This is what you would do in a coffee shop. But today I wanted to focus on a handful of words that I found particularly helpful. Um, all of them in the ministry of Paul the patron saint of urban ministry. And we're really only going to focus in on a couple of verses, but these words occur over and over again. You hear them in Ephesus, you hear them in Athens, you hear them in Corinth. These words describe what it was Paul did with the word of God. And I just want to walk through them. I want to share with you a little bit how how these words have shaped the way I go about um, preaching. Uh, and, and just take a look this morning. So if you would, um, open up in the book of Acts. In fact, you might already be there. I want to just look at the beginning of Acts 17. Just look with me at verse 2. Here's Paul in Thessalonica. He's trying to reach the Jews in the synagogues. And it says here in verse 2, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, what's happening here is evangelistic. And it's also in the setting of the synagogue. But the words we find here, reasoning, explaining, 
and proving. These ones are threaded through the whole thing. You could turn over to Athens and you're going to find Paul reasoning with the Jews and in the marketplace, same word. You're going to find this idea of explaining or opening across Paul's ministry. Really, the preaching he does evangelistically and the preaching he does with his church is the same. In fact, one of these words here, um, I believe it's uh, reasoning, this first one, is the same one that's used when Eutychus falls from a window as he preaches all night long. Okay? So this is not evangelism versus edification. This is, this is broader than that. This is how Paul utilized the word of God. The first word here, often in new translations, uh, is translated as reasoning, and that already gets us moving in a particular direction, but that's probably not appropriate for the word. This is why I say this, because um, as Ray mentioned last night, this is the word we find in countless occasions um, where we get our English word dialogue. A hundred years before Paul, this was the definitive term for the Socratic method, for the philosophic communication of the Greeks. And so when our translators put reasoning here, that's what they're thinking of. But by this time, the word had passed into a much more generic and broad sense. And so lots of translators and basically every great work of the Greek language behind the translators, the TDNT, Thayer's Lexicon, they will reiterate the fact that we might as well just translate this as address. Okay? It, it doesn't carry... Uh, a concept of logic or convincing or apologetics necessarily. However, it does in its heart imply something that I think we often forget about in preaching. Preaching is a dialogue. And too often we come at it, start out of the gate thinking of it as a monologue. Now it's a unique dialogue because you're the only one talking. But that doesn't make it a monologue. As Ray mentioned last night, just a little bit later, Paul is preaching in a city, the Jews kick him out, and so he rents a hall in the school of Tyrannus. And every day he does this word. But there it's the passive present participle. That actually broadens out the term and it means that he wasn't driving the discussion, that he's fielding the questions, okay? but it's the same word in both places. The Greek root that I mentioned implies this idea of interaction, even though the Socratic method uh, was only one camp using this where you'd actually interact with your audience. The Platonic method where you were just making a case and an argument, they use the same word. There's a danger in the church today, actually it's fading because it doesn't work because it's not built on preaching. But the emergent church was famous for just saying, let's get rid of the sermons, let's get rid of the preaching, let's bring in discussion, okay? Now, one of the flaws in that is not that there's anything wrong with discussion, it's that discussion doesn't work with a large audience, okay? What happens when you have more than 12 people having a discussion? You have a very small discussion of four relatively gregarious people and an audience, okay? It loses its effectiveness. And so as soon as we're even in a room like this, we need something different. But if we forget the reality that there's not merely a speaker but a hearer, then we forget the basic truth of what communication is. Communication is not just sound, even sound that makes sense coming out, but sound being received and understood, right? Communication only happens when there's not merely a speaker but also a hearer. 
Communication doesn't happen when you're speaking a different language, right? It's not unless the two are connected that this happens. And this word, dialogue, it draws us to this idea, okay? And so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that your preaching needs to be a conversation, but I am saying that you need to be conversant with those you preach to, okay? How does this work? How does this happen? I don't like the word relevant. And the reason I don't like it is because it has become this tagline which basically refers to how we use technology and what style of worship we do. Relevance, relevance should not be merely about the clothing our ministry wears. And I don't just mean that literally, I just mean putting something over the truth of who Christianity is to make it more relevant to the culture. Relevant definitely doesn't mean becoming someone you're not to reach people who are different than you. And if anyone should understand this, it's Calvary Chapel. Chuck did not become a hippie, right? But he was conversant with hippies. And he spoke to them, he knew them, and when he spoke, he spoke to them, okay? Relevance is deeper. Relevance is about actually communicating with real people. And another way this goes wrong, as Sebastian mentioned, is we, we settle for exegeting a culture as a large body, as a homogenous, non-physical reality. And there's clearly that part. But oftentimes that means we preach to hypothetical people. And so what we say isn't actually talking to anyone, it's talking to assumed people. We're preaching to ghosts and unicorns. And it's not merely, it's not merely that Paul was familiar with the poets and the prophets of the cultures he was trying to reach. He knew the fears and the desires. In fact, I'll tell you what has been the most helpful thing to me in achieving this is recognizing the deeper roots of humanity that we all share. I'll be honest, coming to Capitol Hill with a traditional gay neighborhood, without ever saying this, I really believe that part of my plan was that sinners who loved Jesus, but different sinners, would come and help people deal with this particular sin that wasn't our issue. I, that was not my methodology, it wasn't in our vision statement, but I think that's really what I thought. And then I came down here and I discovered that relationally, I was a mess. That even though Jesus saved me from being an ass, I hadn't ever learned how to positively love people. And I didn't learn it moving around and being in ministry because I never stayed put long enough to reap what I had sown. Or I was in such context where people would pass through and they wouldn't stop to tell me how I had treated them as they went out the door. So I didn't know. But the scary thing about planting a church and anchoring your feet and then having a community that are committed around you is pretty soon the crops come to bear. And so about three years into our church, some of my friends who were also the leaders in my church sat me down. We had made some bad decisions in venue. And the church was suffering and I couldn't see it because I am oblivious to things like this. So they came to me and they said, the church is really hurting. We're pretty sure it's your fault. And they didn't hold their role in the church for ransom. 
They didn't come with anger, they came with concern for me and for the church, and it was evident. And they said, here's what it's like to be your friend. And they just gave me, one by one, their biographies of our friendships. And it was rough. It was super hard. Part of the reason it was hard is because how they felt I felt about them was totally inaccurate. But the evidence they presented and the conclusions they drew was logical. So, what I found was that I had a relationship issue. And I had to flee to the scriptures and discover their power afresh for a person like me. And then suddenly I saw that this thread of poor relationship flows through my church. That I could be the chief of sinners like Paul, but it was a difference in gradation, not a difference in category. I started to see the same thing in our neighborhood. I started to see the same thing in the city, and I discovered the advantage of learning a few things about what the gospel does in this area. Because even though I was subhuman, I was also coming up on most improved. And so what happened was in the midst of all of this vulnerability is I'm just sharing how God is working me over with the truth afresh and how I'm in that you know, unique place to Christianity that the reformers called simultaneously saint and sinner. Watching as God is growing me and improving me and giving me life and at the same time being completely crushed and desperate. And I'm just sharing people what's going on and they're hungry for that. They start to see that in themselves. Like I said, I, I by far was way ahead of people in incompetence and relationships. I still am. But one of the ways we dialogue is we go deep into our own human nature and we find truth that's relevant, not because it looks like that, not because it talks like that, but because it's at the very heart of the human problem. For me, relevance isn't about shallowness and surface, it's about depth. And so, this word implies conversant. And sometimes that just means conversant with how the gospel speaks to you. But it clearly means more than that. Because for me, everything we're going to say about preaching today applies in every church, urban and suburban. But in urban, we don't have the option to settle for myths. Because there's a lot more people in this church who aren't like me. And there's a boatload of people in this neighborhood who aren't like me. And I can't settle into a suburb of my folks and my people or a church that does things my way. In fact, one of the most striking things about this church for me has been when Christians come through this door, they don't come with any connection to Calvary Chapel. They usually don't know what that is. They saw non-denominational, and there's only a dozen of us in the city. And so they show up here, and they come from Mainline, and they come from Pentecostal. They come from every background. Um, we'll come back to that. All these words I want to talk about this morning, they overlap and they interweave. This is not four things to do in a row every Sunday, but we'll come back to that. But the second thing I would very much encourage you to do uh, if you're going to be conversant, if your preaching is going to connect, if it's going to be communication, then you have to listen. Here's how I did it early in my church, specifically with non-Christians. Anytime I had a non-Christian in my church, and I was introduced to them, I'd say, can I take you to lunch and talk about my preaching? 
And I'll tell you what, they were always interested in that, and I'll promise you as well, they had never been asked something like that. And so I just say, so what I'm really interested in is if you were picking up what I was laying down. What I'm really interested in is if there's any place where while I was talking, the, the thing derailed for you because you had a question I didn't answer. Were there any times where you thought, now wait a minute, hold on just one minute, and I actually addressed that concern, right? Because if it's a dialogue, but I'm the only one talking, then you have to perceive and pre-guess where people are at. If preaching is a journey, which is how I like to think about it, there's a lot of stations where people can get off the train along the way. So you want to make sure that people make their, their connections. If they don't believe you, you want to prove it. If they don't understand, you want to clarify. If they have questions, you want to answer. And so I found consistently that as I had these conversations, suddenly I started to preach to real people. Not directly, not, hey, when we were having that conversation the other day and you mentioned, well, here's what I would say to that. But I started to understand who my church was. I found the same thing to be helpful as I've preached to people within the church who are different than me. Because one of the hardest things about being a pastor is you have to help people be things that you aren't. There are people in your church who are older than you and are learning how to do old age, and you're not there yet. There are women in your church, and you've got to help them grow as a woman. There are people grieving their children, and you've never grieved, right? All of these elements are part of what it means, because I'll tell you what pastor means. It means just because you bear the label, people bring stuff to you, and it's insane, right? It's not, I have the degree, I have the background. People call me, and they go, hey, things are a mess, but you're my pastor. That's it. That's the entry level. And so... I've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and when I got to chapter 7, talking about marriage and singleness, I had to own up to the fact that I was married at the age of 20, okay? That I've never had to be single. All of my singleness was a choice. I got married as early as I could have, right? So I took some of the people in my church, people I trusted, people I knew who weren't bitter singles, but also people I knew who struggled to find out that place, and I asked them what it was like. And I'll show you why this is important, because one of the guys I took out is about 50 years old. Um, he's been in our church for a couple of years. We were just getting to know one another. And so he was one of the older single people in our church, and I really had no idea what his story would be like this. So I took him out to coffee for this reason, and, he's, and I said, so what is it like for you? What is singleness like for you? And he said, well, first you should understand that I'm gay. I had no idea. And we had preached through the book of Romans, through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, suddenly, some other things fell into light, and I said, what's that like, attending our church? I mean, you've heard me preach on these things. You know where we stand. And he said, to be honest, I think it's pretty clear what the Bible teaches. I'm still struggling with where I stand with it. And he said, but the reason I'm single or a celibate is because, because singleness is what I want in my life, and so it hasn't been a problem for me attending this church because it's, it's kind of a non-issue. In fact, I think homosexuality is a really good example. I've watched the church burn out on this issue because they don't know anyone dealing with same-sex attraction. And the scary part is not that people dealing with same-sex attraction are out there and we're not reaching them. They're sitting in the pews and being alienated by your misunderstanding. 
they're sitting there realizing, oh, that's not how I experience this. They're thinking, I've spent hours praying and begging that God would change this, and you're saying that homosexuality is a choice. Now I'm just a monster, right? There's a blog called Spiritual Friendship, and they said, look, what the church needs most on the issue of homosexuality is for the gay community within the church to raise their hands. He said, but what that community needs most is a safe church to do so, and it's chicken or the egg. And he said this simply. He said, I know my part. I know where I'm at as a same-sex attracted. The church needs me to talk about my struggle and these types of things. But for us, do you recognize that you're on the other side? Do you know? Have you talked to? Have you asked questions? We cannot impart the word of God to those who we do not know. And like I said, there's common ground You can preach to strangers on the street and you can reach deep, but if you're going to continue to impart the word of God, you've got to know your church. Preaching will demonstrate who you spend the most time with. And if it's commentators and commentaries, you will talk to commentators and commentaries. If it's pastors and ministers, you will talk to pastors and ministers. If it's Christians in your Christian bubble, you will only talk to Christians. But if you diversify and if you reach out, suddenly teaching becomes a dialogue. The second word he uses here, uh, look again at verse 3. It says, explaining and proving. The word there for explaining is just the word open. It's the word that's used for the opening of a box in one place. It's the word that's used for Jesus opening the ears of a man who was deaf It's the word that's used twice in Luke 24 when people say, uh, the the disciples on the back, way back from Emmaus say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? And then a little bit later when it says, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the word here. It's a very simple word. What the word open means is what we experienced last night in Ray. In fact, maybe some of us resonate with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and we think to ourselves, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures for us? As he walked through the Bible and said, here's what you're not seeing in the scriptures. What this means for me, I've simply described as show, not tell. Okay. The power of the Bible is in the Bible. The authority of the Bible is in the Bible. And the, uh, the danger in preaching is that we talk about the Bible, that we talk from the Bible. Let me, let me let you in on something that I find fascinating. God chose to reveal himself through human rules of language. He condescended to use Hebrew and Greek grammar. He adapted the communication that he had into Hebrew poetry and Greek structures of storytelling and all these things. Why? Because he wanted to be understood. Do you know what the glorious reverse engineering reality of that is? It means we can be relatively confident in our knowledge of God. We can trust the grammar. I cannot tell you how much time in this church I spend talking grammar and structure and basic sentence. I'm not a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar, but language is language. 
And there's a lot of things that can be brought apart. But if you open the scriptures, then all you do is help them to see what it says. In fact, Thayer's says that one way to translate this word is expound. You know what that is? That's expository, right? If we understand anything as Calvary Chapel, it's the importance of expository preaching, but we can still fall short of this reality of laying bare the truth. Many of you know that Mars Hill is a big issue for us in Seattle, and I say is because it still is. There's still people trying to figure out and wrap their heads about the last decade of their life and what it means in their walk with God and what it means for our community, all of those things. And when Mark showed up, one of the reasons he drew such tremendous crowds is because he spoke with authority. But there is a downside to that reality. When his authority became questionable, so did the truth. People are wrestling and struggling to hold on to their faith going, I don't know what's true anymore. When you just show people what the scripture says and you leave the weight on that authority, not only is it real authority, but it also leaves a hook. It also leaves footprints. It leaves a way beyond whatever happens to me in ministry. We have this danger in church history of using the Bible to say biblical things instead of just giving the Bible to the people, instead of just opening it to the people. I'm really sensitive to interpretations like allegory that just say, let's talk about biblical things using the pictures of the Bible. A thorough intent really matters to me because I'm interested in what the Bible is saying to us, right? Not just biblical things that can be shown through the Bible. And the consequence of allegorizing was that the church got to a place where the Bible had to be made open. And that's what Luther did. He just took it and he said, we need this to be visible again. He unchained it from the pulpits and said, see, this is what it says. My church has been full of people who have completely different beliefs. So I'll come back to this. Christian and non. But I can't tell you how often they say to me, well, this is where I'm at, but I know what the Bible says. That's the goal. That's the place. Okay. So we open. We open the scriptures and that's helpful for authority. We open the scriptures and that's, once again, a relevant issue. Okay. Here's what I love about Ray as a speaker. I don't know if you noticed or not. His real gifting is not just his insane obsessiveness and lifelong journey and experience. His gifting is analogy. He sees his people in his context in the Bible. And he's not trying to make the pieces fit. When he talks about Israel in the wilderness on manna as welfare people, that's a perfect illustration. His whole point in opening the scriptures and helping us to see the urban is they're here. They're present. People like us are in the Bible. That's another part of what it means to be open, to say, look, the Bible is about you. Where I always begin in my preaching is proving to people that this passage is talking to them. That it's not just some sort of archaeologically significant text about some other church's problems. Every week I'm saying, I know you're not going to like to hear it, but you are the Corinthian church. I know you think you've got your act together, but surprise, surprise, this is our issue, not just their issue. Right? And that, like I said, is what struck me originally about Calvary Chapel, is these people really believe the Bible was speaking to them. That's part of what it means to open the scriptures. The last word here in this verse is that he proved 
But that's an overstatement of what this word is. 75% of the time that this Greek word occurs in the Bible, it's talking about food. It means to just set food out. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he presents, he asks the disciples to present the food to them, that's what this word means. Okay, here's, here's, um, here's the thing. This is not performance art. This is not passive. What happens when we expound the word of God, like I said, it's a dialogue, it's communication. Presenting the text to the people means placing the truth in their lap and saying, you're going to have to respond to this. You're going to have to do something with this. I've prepared the meal, now you have to eat it. One of the places I think we fail to do that that's so important in the city is with non-Christians. And part of this just comes back to dialogue. I address non-Christians every week because I know that they're here. And so I'll take a place and I'll go, so if you're not a Christian, here's, here's a place where the Bible is speaking to you today. And the reason I do that is because we as a culture, in the church, outside the church, I don't know if it's a modern issue or a human issue, but we generally approach this stuff like we approach science. And so we want to dissect it, and we want to understand it, but we want it safely on the table and we're in control. But the way the Bible presents the God of the Bible is, is something completely different than that. That eventually, sooner or later, even though we have to understand the Bible, we also have to let the Bible interpret us. Right? And so when it says he's proving here, he's presenting, he's saying, what are you going to do about this? What does it mean for you? And this is more than just application and here's why you should do this in your job. It's, if this is true, what are you going to do about it? I want to add one more word because it's common to Paul. You'll find it in chapter 18, verse 4. It says here that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. That word is also used multiple times of Paul's urban preaching ministry inside and outside the church persuasion. And I think one of the things that's been important to me here in this community is preaching to persuade. And I haven't had the option to not do so. See, we live in a culture where a lot of communication, the only subtext is reinforcement. What's underneath what the message we're giving is we're the type of people who believe these types of things. Or even worse, can you believe there's people out there who believe those types of things? Blog culture right now is not communication, not with the other side. It's not dialogue. It's not seeking to learn or to interact. It's not even seeking to prove. It's only seeking to reinforce. And I think preaching today in our churches, especially with us becoming a cultural minority, especially with the concerns we have and the division and distance that's growing between us and them, it's happening in our pulpits. People are assuming that everyone sitting in the room is on the same page. And you've probably experienced this in your ministry if you're in an urban setting. It's not the case. There is not an issue that I present in this Bible. There is not a view of Calvary Chapel that I present that everybody in the room already believes this. When I talk about the rapture, that's probably self-evident. But when I talk about the penal substitutionary atonement, I've got people who go, no way, man. That's cosmic child abuse. Those people are in my church, okay? When I talk about gender issues, when I talk about sexuality, when I talk about 
how you should treat your boss or your spouse, it doesn't matter. We need to learn to preach to persuade, to convince people of the truth of these things. And Paul made that a, uh, a heartbeat of his ministry. And so my question to you in, in, in this last word of persuasion is, are you making an argument when you preach? Because you need to. There are people on the other side. Not only, like I said, with dialogue, should you know they're there so you could talk to them, but you should seek to persuade. You should seek to convince. The methodology in all these things is diverse. It's, you know, you may do that um, like Timothy Keller does by showing that they already believe some of these things and that the logical conclusions of the things they already believe must lead this way. One of the ways that I like doing it is showing the deficiency of their options. One time, a guy was, um, he came to a church I was working for, he asked for gas money, and while we were working this all out, he was explaining to me what he was doing in our area, and he had come up because he had enough tickets and enough police record problems that there was a warrant out for his arrest, and so he was just trying to clean things up. He was living in another state, but he'd been living with his girlfriend, his baby mama, in, her girl, in his girlfriend's house where she and the parents were working and he was staying home playing video games all day. And all of a sudden, his girlfriend just disappears. Walks out on him, walks out on her family, walks out on the baby, she's just gone. And so kind of the reality of this hits him and he goes, oh, I'm the only one left. I have no idea where she went. I've gotta go clean up these messes that I've made. And so we're having this, and we've got a college service that night. He's about that age. And so I say, why don't you stick around for the study? And he goes, oh, no, man, I'm not into that. I don't believe in any old man in the sky. And I said, neither do I. And he said, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've always seen myself as master of my own destiny. And I said, how's that working out for you? You see, the reality of sin nature is that we're totally blind to how desperate we actually are. And so a great way to persuade is just to show the depravity of people's solutions because we forget. It's not just the ones who haven't gotten rich yet who think that riches will sustain them. It's the rich who live in misery, you know, food turning to dust in their mouth and still go through the motions, right? It's so hard to break the illusion of idolatry. But like it was when I became a Christian, like it was when I encountered the word of God, the truth can just burst that like a bubble and suddenly you see things as they really are. Suddenly the light penetrates and you go, this is ridiculous. This is not choosing between laying down my happiness. This is what Jeremiah talked about when he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken the fountain of living water and have made for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what we are. We're sitting in the dust barely getting by, barely quenching our thirst, when God is just saying, it's all here, it's all available, it's all refreshing. Let me add one other part to preaching to persuade. It's a truism. It's self-evident. It's obvious that you have to practice what you preach. But don't forget that practice what you preach also means public repentance. Don't forget that, that uh, as a pastor... We reflect Jesus to the people, but there's a huge asterisk next to that because Jesus doesn't need to repent, and we and our people do. 
And so the way that we lead our people is to be transformed by the gospel in their midst. In fact, I mentioned to you my original paradigm of we don't have our stuff together, but it's different problems and we're going to come down and help people with different problems. Here's the new paradigm. Here's the, the testimony of our ministry here on the hill. God has called us into this community to be publicly transformed in its midst and invite them into that change. There's been nothing more persuasive than the reality of the transformed lives of our church. And the people who come and sit under the word and see the disparity in those things, they sit in our home groups and they watch as the gospel works. And they watch as people divulge things that would never be shared in any other community and they watch as they present their problems and see God come through. They watch as they struggle and suffer as everybody does and still hold on to their faith. Let me finish here. I am thoroughly convinced that cultural change begins in repentance in the church. And it's relatively easy to prove because that's what revival is, right? Where does revival begin? It begins here. And we're in a place in America right now where some people are, are saying, you know, this is a Christian nation or this was a Christian nation. Why can we not take that to its logical conclusion and say, therefore, this is our fault? And the reason why the truth isn't good anymore to the world that we live in is because in a lot of ways, we're just as blind. We're just as impervious to that truth as the culture. When we understand sexuality for ourselves, when we start to experience these things for, for themselves, then that truism of just being beggars, telling other beggars where to find bed, bread becomes not just a truism. It becomes salvation itself. So, preaching means dialogue. You have to be aware of the fact that there are people who are asking questions that you can't hear, who are not understanding what you just said and wish you would clarify, who don't believe you and are asking for evidence. And they're not always going to come up to you afterwards. We tried to do a Q&A after our services here um, because I thought that was a great idea and it worked really well in New York for Tim Keller doesn't work in Seattle because I don't have gregarious New Yorkers who are willing to go, yeah, I think you're totally wrong. <laughs> Instead, we just quietly disagree and go our way. And so I don't have the opportunity to wait for the Q&A. Dialogue. Open the scriptures. Don't just tell people what the Bible says. Don't just read it and then tell them what the Bible says. Show them. Anchor what you're saying in the text. Show and demonstrate that this is clearly what it means. Be willing to say, even apologetically, just even, even just recognizing, look, there is no other way to understand this text. On, on the gender issues, it's one thing to say, I think women and men are equal and should have no difference in role in the church. It's another thing to say, you can prove that from the scriptures. And so a lot of times when I'm addressing these texts like I did in 1 Corinthians with head coverings, like I did later in 1 Corinthians with a woman be silent in church, I had to just go, what else could this text mean? 
And I also spent a lot of time going, this is clearly not what the text means, and picking apart a lot of the weird culture that we have in the church that we've added on and grafted into those ideas. But still, at the end of the day, I had to say, here's what the Bible says clearly. Now what? Right? And that's the third part. Set it in their laps. Present it to them. Don't just do it as something. Did you know that Jesus in the New Testament cares a lot more about the hearers than the speakers? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus says, anyone who has hears, let them hear. There's an active responsibility to the people in our churches to hear, not just to proclaim on our end. They don't just come to sit and passively be washed over by the truth. They have to respond. They have to eat the meal. And then finally, preach to persuade. Stop thinking that everybody in the room is already there. Stop thinking that everybody in the room is full and firm and agreeing with you and you're just rehearsing well-known truths. Demonstrate that the word of God is active and powerful. Just think of that for a second and then we'll close. Active and powerful, living and powerful. We would generally call a book an inanimate object, not this book. It's animate, it's living. We would also say that when you interact and you read a book, you're doing the activity as the reader and the Bible is passive. But the word there in Hebrews for powerful actually means, no, actually, it's the active one. It's the one doing the work. And so really simply all I'm saying is present the Bible to the people. Talk directly to them. Help them see themselves in the Bible. Open the Bible so that they understand it. Leave the authority with the scriptures and recognize that authority. Help your people and your visitors to recognize that authority and say, here stands the word of God. Here is the truth. Now what are you going to do about it? We've got a couple of minutes here, and I'd like to, as we've done with the other sessions, I'd, I'd like to just discuss um, these lessons are important to me, and so I speak them boldly and broadly. There's really only one thing I talk about, and you guys have just gotten the full frontal version of it. Um, but they're lessons that I've learned and am learning, and I would love to hear what this looks like in your churches. Um, because there are still places where I'm desperate and on my knees trying to figure out what it looks like here and now.